and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest this week is Glenn Tilbrook. Now, Glenn is the lead singer and guitarist of the band Squeeze, who have had amazing songs throughout the years. One of their most recognizable songs is Tempted, which, believe it or not, wasn't their highest chart-topping song in the States. We talk about which song that honors go to. Glenn, alongside his partner, Chris Dilford, Chris supplied the lyrics while Glenn supplied the music, was such an amazing duo, and they're still together to this day. We talk about some of the background and some of the songs, some of their most popular songs, some that I really enjoy we talk about as well. And we talk about one song that got stuck in my head for years that I could not get out of. Glenn, such an amazing musician. I really enjoyed my conversation with him, and I hope you do as well. It's not every day where I can actually talk to someone who 35 years ago had a song stuck in my head for months and I couldn't shake it and I was like cursing them and finally I get to confront the person and basically just you know playfully have some fun with him uh a telephone song uh eight five I know you hate the song eight five three five nine three seven seven. yeah Mm. I know you guys don't like the song but it was stuck in my head I was 12 years old for months I kept repeating it (laughs) I I even called the number a bunch of times as a prank because you know that's what 12 year olds do But um, just, yeah, talk to me about that song and like why it was made and why you guys ended up like hating it.
you know, uh, that was my phone number in London, right. and it was uh, I. I did it as a answer phone jingle for myself, right. and uh, and then it it turned into a song. Um, and it's I don't know. It's a pretty lightweight song, really. I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> now <laughs> it's. I know, you know, right? We've got better ones, I think. Oh, yeah, you got so many better ones. But what does it say about us Americans that that's your second highest ranked uh, song, you know, charted song in the States? <laughs> well, I don't think I don't think it says uh, anything about Americans. I think what it says is about the power of a record company to decide when your time is coming up. Right. And they decided that uh, the Hourglass was going to be a hit. Um, and they also decided that 853 will get a push. And we'd never had that push before, and I don't think we've ever had it since either. So uh, that's just the, you know, them's the breaks. Yeah, no, that's it's a real shame because, like, if you ask anybody, you know, what's the most popular Swiss song, it's probably tempted. People probably thought it was the number one song, and you know, I don't think it even barely touched the top forty in the states. Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a missed opportunity for sure. Yeah. So just talk to me about like what you guys. And you particular did during the pandemic because the last concert I saw before everything shut down was I saw you guys in Hall and Oates at Madison Square Garden, which was a fantastic show. Right. But just talk to me about like the eight, last 18 months for you guys. Well, it was so weird. Um, you know, we did a couple of shows on our own. Um, afterwards, the last show we did was in Tarrytown. And, uh, and then went home and within a week we were in lockdown. And I'll be honest with you, it was it was quite exciting at first, <laughs> in a, in a weird way. Right. You're not, you know, I wasn't overly worried about the health aspects of it, and I thought it seemed with that sort of with COVID going around, it was a, an obvious, sensible solution. But as time went on, I felt very lucky to not be on my own, to have my family, most of my family around me. And and uh, also, I think the thing thing is for me, it's the longest time I've had at home since I was twenty five. Um, right. There's always something to do. There's always somewhere to go. You know, and I love you know I love my life. I love touring and all that. But it was a real chance to savor being at home for a bit. And I, I did lots of cooking and stuff that I don't normally get a chance. You know, I certainly never get a chance to do it on the road. So we turned it around also, you know, because I have a studio and I had family around me, um, we decided to, uh, we started doing songs every week, cover songs, and putting them up on YouTube. And uh, we did a 12, 13, 14, 15 of those. And that really helped see us through because it gave us, we'd do it like every Wednesday, it gave us a real good focal point for what we were for the week, you know, something to get our teeth into and something to bring us together. All, all these people that we're in a bubble with, you know, so that was, that was really good fun. And I would never have done that had it not been for the pandemic. Right. And then, you know, people think that, you know, like musicians, all of them are wealthy, but I mean, a lot of them depend on touring because there's no money in record sales anymore. So did you guys like, you know, kind of charge kind of like a GoFundMe or like a Kickstarter for those songs or you just put them out there just, you know, for the public to hear? You know, at the moment, 
I've just put them out there. I don't know. You're right. There's no money in there's no money in making records, but you know, I can never look at it. You know, I can't look at it as a financial thing anymore. But I have to look at it as an artistic thing. Right. Um, and that's the way forward for me. It's not just as bold as there's no money, so therefore I won't do it. You know, that's, that's not, <laughs> it's not the way that um, I am. Right. So, uh, so you know, we'll we'll find a way around it. The way around it at the moment is touring. That's where my income is. Yeah. Right. I mean, like I said, you know, I saw you guys last year with, with Hall and Oates, and every time I see you guys, it's always with, you know, a great like you know a double bill. I've seen you guys with Cheap Trick. Uh, the B-52s, I mean, some, you know, amazing, like, you know, bands together, but I haven't seen you guys perform just by yourself. I really want to, because when, when you see you guys in another band, you're limited in the amount of songs. Your set list is probably cut in half as opposed to what you would play, you know, so you play all the hits, which is great, but there's so many mm. great squeeze songs that I'm sure you play when you just play, you know, by yourself rather than playing, yeah. say, Hall and Oates and like the B-52s. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, the set list is uh, quite adventurous. Um, but, you know, in a situation like the one that we're in with Hall Notes, we've got to, you know, really go for the jugular with the audience and, yeah. and smash it to them. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's our choice to do it that way. Right. So, like, when you, uh, like, obviously, you know, you write the music and Chris does the lyrics and you guys have been, you know, doing it for such a long time and doing it at a, at, a, at a great, great pace. So like, what's the process for you guys to create a song? Well, the way that we work has changed slightly. I, I now do some lyrics on uh, Squeeze songs because, you know, when, when we last met up in 98, um, I sort of had to really learn how to write because I've been dependent on Chris for lyrics and I love his lyrics. But, uh, I found out that I have a talent for my own. My number one influence is Chris, but uh, I think also that uh, I bring something different to the table. But normally with a, with a writing thing with Chris, is he would send me through a bunch of uh, lyrics and I never read them until I'm sat down with a piano and a guitar. And I, I'm very keen to find out what my first impression is of a lyric and try and work on that. That's why I never read them ahead of time. So that's normally the way I work. And then, and then you have to, you know, disrupt yourself, find different ways to, to inspire music. So although I start out with a piano and guitar, you know, I might switch to a tenor guitar. I might switch to an organ, anything that will just, give me a little bump and a kick into the next room. So you, you wait to get the lyrics before you write the music. It's not, have you ever done it the other way around? Well, I say that's the normal way to do it. <laughs> uh, but say for instance, on, on our last album, there's a song called Departure Lounge, which on, I think is one of the best songs we've ever written. Oh. Sit and look into the distance I never know what they're thinking The old 
sip with their eyes slowly closing and then open diving in and out of each second the old seven eight years sometimes that happens you know you have little bits and pieces of stuff and and it's good to squirrel them away and then bring them out with a fresh perspective and finish it off so that's how the tune for departure lounge came around when i saw the lyric i thought you know it might go with that that bit of music that i did in malibu actually looking over at the, the sea <laughs> it was the most fantastic setting a right. friend of ours house on the clifftops of Malibu, just looking out over onto the sea. It was just a wonderful moment for me. Oh, that's great. Now, you mentioned The Knowledge, and which is a, absolutely a fantastic album. It's your last, I guess, original. I mean, I guess Spot the Difference is your last album, but I mean, The Knowledge with you know, original songs. Um, 
Departure Land is a great song. I want to mention Rough Ride because Rough Ride is such a unique song. And um, how did you guys come up with just the music for that? I mean, it's it's such a unique song with the chorus and the operatic sound. Unique and fantastic.
thank you. Um, really, um, first of all, that was one that Chris, I did the lyrics for the verses and Chris did the lyrics for the chorus and did a really good job of summing it up. It's really important to me to, uh, I'm talking about Britain when I say this, by the way, uh, to watch the way that the housing market's gone, how people of my age, you know, can say, oh, you know, we paid this for this house and now it's worth this. And it's, it's an economy that's based on eating up our children's future to have constantly, you know, rising house prices. You know, I have four kids and none of them can afford to buy a house without some help. And I do have a house at the moment, you know, so that was important. So it felt like uh, there was a grand scale in what the lyrics were aspiring to say. And so uh, the, my friend Cara, who is the opera singer, uh, I asked her if she would sing on it, and she just has this most magnificent voice. Um, and then, you know, I got my youngest son's class to come in and sing some lines. I've got some session singers in, and, and then there's me and Chris. So it turned into, you know, I want it to be a really big scale thing, and, and it is. Oh, we have the NHS um, choir as well. <laughs> that, like, that's... Uh, 28-piece choir. Wow. Just throw that in for good measure. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Now, an album like that, I mean, you guys, I'm sure, release it independently now. I mean, you have to deal with, like, the, the, the record companies. So how much, like, money did you put behind that album? Was that also, like, a GoFundMe Kickstarter campaign? Was that solely you guys? No, uh, we had... Um... We had a label come in. We did. We had another album called Cradle to the Grave in right. 2015. Um, uh, that was funded by a label because that was attached to a TV series in, in the UK. With the knowledge, we had a different label. And any label that is surviving now, they want a story to go with the record. Like, just having a record, it's like, who cares? Right. I get that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Um, so you know we had some we had some funding for uh, the knowledge, but uh, uh, as ever, you know, if you have any hopes for anything breaking through, it's almost like you're bound to be disappointed. The thing is to be pleased with the the record by itself as its own entity, as a as a mark in the sand as to where you are at that time. Because I mean, I know these days you might hear four or five artists on the radio and that's about it. So it's got to be really hard to get even like established artists like you guys to break through and get actually airplay on the radio. Yeah, um, get airplay or get on, you know, Spotify playlists or, yeah. you know, or get on those things now. Because, you know, I think that uh, my, my kids are aged between... 31 and 15 and none of them listen to the radio they pick up stuff from their friends they pick up stuff from tiktok and and youtube and you know like for instance there's a really great uh jazz scene uh going on in london in the, in particular the part of london where i am there's a music college and my 18 year old has just started going there and uh, so 
there are all these kids that are really talented musicians that are creating their own scene. And that has nothing to do with radio or any national thing. It's an entirely local thing, and it's all the healthier for it. Uh, that's great. Have you guys ventured into any TikToks at all? <laughs> um, no, we've yet to venture there, really. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's all my it's all my eleven year old daughter does around the house. Sometimes it gets a little frustrating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how how did uh, how did you and Chris and like Jules meet originally? Um. Uh, well, uh, Jules, I met when I was uh, fourteen. I think I had a friend who wanted to buy a guitar off of this guy, but didn't really know anything about guitar. So asked me to come along um, and have a look at it. So I did, and the guy selling the guitar was Jules. Um, so the guitar was rubbish. It wasn't worth what he was asking for it. <laughs> and I said, don't buy it. But through meeting Jules, he was the first person I met that could play. And so we started playing together. And it was really, it was really just really great to have someone else who understood about music and also was coming from a different place to me. Right. Um, and uh, so that carried on for a year. And, and at the end of that year, I guess it was when I met Chris, he put an advert up in a shop window, in a store window, looking for a guitarist. And I was the only person to reply. So mm-hmm. um, with Chris, it was different because I, Jules and I had never really managed to write and I was writing by myself. Chris was also writing by himself and I was blown away with his songs. Um, And he too with mine. And so within a month or two of meeting, we started writing and then it's like we couldn't stop. We turned on a tap and Chris would just give me lyrics and I'd try out songs and we wrote a few hundred songs Mm. in the first three years that we that we were together. Not all of them uh, masterpieces by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> but enough of them were good um, for you know to propel us forward. Right. How many of those songs actually made it to your debut album? Well, for instance, on Cradle to the Grave, uh, there's a song called You're Only 16, I think. Um, that was written when we were certainly when I was 16 and it's a very specific lyric about frustrations of being that age and your parents telling you what to do. And now that there was no place in squeeze for, for that by the time we started making records, but the project that we had with Cradle to Grave gave mm-hmm. us an opportunity to use it. So there you go. Something from 1974 came to our aid in 2015. Wow. <laughs> yeah so what did like you guys chris have like a journal with all the songs written i mean you guys didn't like lose that right i mean obviously if you use it 40 years later yeah i mean i uh, i got all the songbooks stored in my studio and right. uh, uh you know i look after them very carefully uh to my to my eternal shame that i lost one of them when i was 17 or 18 left it on a bus yeah but uh you know most of them we have um you know it's like 
eight or nine books. And then it changed, you know, then it turned into emails and printed up yeah. pieces of paper. It's not quite as romantic as handwritten. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but, but at least you have it now in case you leave it on the bus again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's nice to about just, you know, a couple of songs throughout the years I actually love and just, you know, some curious ones. Uh, I'm going to start with Babylon On Again with uh, Some Americans. It's like the last song on, on that, um, that album. The lyrics are really interesting. What was the meaning behind that one? Some Americans 
Um, really, you'd have to ask Chris, but my guess on it is that, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, at that time, well, still now, but uh, America holds the balance of power in the world and in the nuclear age of, it's always a worry if something goes wrong, who's uh, fingers on the trigger, as it were. I think that was, uh, that was what that was wanting to express. Okay. It's, I mean, the last four years, it was, guess what could have been a little scarier. <laughs> 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 right. You know. Yeah. But um, also, I guess your highest charted song, Hourglass, which in the video is fantastic. It won a you know, video music award from MTV. Did the video actually propel that song to, through the chart? I think it certainly helped, but um, 
you know, uh, I think the label, when they heard that, decided that, that they were going to put all the resources behind us for that. Uh, and, uh, you know, the song itself, I think, moved us forward quite a lot. Uh, I think the chorus, you know, as soon as we play that song live, people start going crazy. And that's uh, right. it's a great feeling. It's, it, it's successful. We managed to do something fresh for Squeeze. So that was good. Right. So why did it take so many years? Like you guys were had so many amazing songs, big hits in, in the UK, but why did it take till 1987 for you know US record companies to say, hey, let's promote this band? Yeah, I think you know our manager for a good deal of that time was also managing the police who were just going stratospheric, and I think that um, we sort of lost out there a bit. Um, you know, it's it's hard to say. I don't know why. I, I don't know why they didn't push us more, but it didn't happen. So, you know, I'm not going to sit and cry about it. Yeah, <laughs> true. Yeah, <laughs> right. Now, uh, up the junction, which probably I guess could be your most popular song. You know, between that and uh, Tempted, which you know, your unique, unique song, no chorus. You only hear up the junction, the last three words of the song. Was that something? Was that kind of I want to say autobiographical from Chris, but how did he come up with that song?
No, it was uh, it was um, an entirely imagined song, and uh, you know, um, I remember when I got that lyric. We were already recording the album that became called the Cats record, and uh, one lunchtime, everyone had gone out to get some for lunch, and I stayed behind at the studio and looked at that lyric, and and I thought to myself, my job is to convey this story and to not get in the way. So it, in my mind, when I wrote it, it was like a Bob Dylan song. Um, it was a narrative and the, and the music better not be too, you know, but just not get in the way. So when we did it originally, it didn't have the tune at the beginning and the end. It was just chords. And that's how, <clears throat> that's how we recorded it. The record company said, you need something at the beginning and the end. So... So I went back in the studio and did the overdubs for the tune and the, and the bits in the verses. There was a lot raw of the original version. Mm. But what a magnificent story, a whole thing. It's like a life, yeah. right? several lives told in three, a three-minute song. It's, it's a pretty great, a great lyric from Chris. Yeah. Was that one of the most difficult ones to put music to for you or no? <coughs> um. It actually came pretty easily. Uh, you know, it's a, it's always a dream when songs are like that because I do know in my career as a writer, some of the best songs have been ones that I've worked on for a long time. It's not just inspiration. You know, it's work. Tempted was like that. Um, but, uh, you know, for Up Junction, you get these songs that just float out of you. And that was one of those. It was a really wonderful moment. Right. And you, you mentioned uh, Tempted, so we'll, we'll, we'll go there now. Um, well, Paul Carrick, you know, did the lead vocals of that song. I mean, by then he was, you know, former lead singer of the band Ace and stuff like that. He came to the band, I guess, when Jules left. So how did how did you guys find him and what was the, the determining factor for him to see sing lead on that song? Well, We'd already recorded Tempted. We did a version of it but with a, that Dave Evans produced that I sang. And it was sort of like, it was like ELO or something, it, but not very good. We, you know, we knew this song was great, but we couldn't, we didn't nail it the first time we recorded it. And so we had another go with Elvis Costello producing and, uh, the version that we ended up cutting really was very influenced by Al Green and his style of making records. Um, and Elvis suggested that Paul sing it. And I'll be honest, you know, I, I, my nose is put out of joint by that. But then as soon as I heard <laughs> Paul sing it, it sounds the way it does now. And, and right. I could never have done that. You know, it was, it was such a good call. Um, and, you know, when we heard it, it just it sounded like a classic, you know, that's, uh, that's how, how it was.
Why did uh, Paul only last the one album? I know he came back in the 90s, but, but why only last in the East Side Story album? Well, what happened is uh, uh, Jake Riviera was managing us. He managed Elvis and Nick Lowe, and Dave Edmonds. And um, he uh, very much wanted to get hold of mine and Chris's publishing. Uh, but we, we had a very poor publishing deal and he offered us another very poor publishing <laughs> deal, which we didn't sign. Right. So he, um, he dropped us and uh, Paul, I think, was being managed by Jake and decided to stay with Jake, so he left. Okay. 
I mean, it worked out for Paul. I mean, joined you know, the mechanics. He had some solo success. But I mean, it worked yeah. out for you guys as well. But um, it's rare because like yeah. you're one, of, yeah, like one of the few bands who had like three different singers on songs between you know you the majority of them Paul doing Tempted and uh, yeah. doing you know Cool for Cats. Mm-hmm. I've always liked that. You know, yeah. I've liked our ability to absorb other people singing, and it's something I do more of. We have uh, Steve Smith in the band now, who is just so, who has such a great voice, and Owen Biddle, our bass player, has a great voice. You know, I'd like to next time we do a record, I'd like to get them to sing as well. Right. Yeah. With Clover Cats, when. Um... He brought that song to you. Did you just like, all right, uh, I'll see what I can do? Or do you like look at Chris and like, what is this? <laughs> um, well, the thing about Call for Cats is that it had a completely different lyric and tune, but we recorded the backing track to the different lyric and tune. And then Chris said, I've got an idea. Let me take the track home and I'll. I have a go at writing some new words. So, and then he came back with what we now know as Call of Cats. And it was very, very different to how, how it had been, but it was undeniably much better than it had been. So we went with it. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, it's more of yeah. an inspiration from Chris. Right. Right. No, it's definitely a, a fun song. But back to Tempted for one sec. Now, are you just like, surprised how that song has just grown in popularity over the years where you know when it started you know it was decent song i mean always a great song but you know decent airplay decent you know charting but how it just blew up and became just this like you know all-time great song you know um regardless of it not charting you know every every time we play it everyone knows it you know whole merch shows everyone knows it it's one of those songs that stood up for itself over over the years, and um, and people are surprised when they find out that it wasn't a hit. But um, I think it's you know it's 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 got legs as a song, and it's still still running now. Now, out of all the people you've toured with, like who is like your favorite? You know, kind of behind the scenes, you know, to hang out with and kind of joke around with. Well, I think in the early days, uh, we did a tour opening for Elvis Costello and the Attractions. It was in 1981. Um, when, when we finished East Side Story album, we went out on tour with them. And we're all in the same bus. You know, it's a lot of bodies in one bus. But uh, we got on. We got on really well, actually. That was... a. Uh, that was a fun tour, and that was a breakthrough tour for us. That introduced us to a lot of people who hadn't been aware of us before. Um, you know, these days, uh, actually, touring with Hall & Oates is such a sweet mixture of uh, of styles. We share many of the same influences, I think, as to uh, Hall & Oates. We're completely different in our execution of it. But, right. uh, I, I really love their songwriting ability, their craft, and their band is great. Yeah, and uh, you know, and and it's uh, it fits like a glove for us. Their audience get us instantly if they don't know us or if they do know us. You know, the, the reaction has been great. So, and they're you know 
they're really nice people. So it's uh, it's uh, slam dunk. Right. Now, yeah, you mentioned like like you know same influence and stuff like that. When was like the moment when you were younger where you realized this is what you wanted to do for your career and life? Um, you know, um, I think when the monkeys were first on TV, uh, they hit at a very good time for me. Um, I was obsessed with them. I was obsessed with their songs. You know, they had great songwriters working for them and Mickey Dolenz and Mike Nesmith wrote some great songs themselves. Um, you know, they were my gateway drug to the Beatles. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I discovered the Beatles a bit later. But, I, you know, so first Beatles album I bought was um, the White Album. No, okay. I bought that when it came out. And then I went and got all the rest of them gradually. And they just completely dominated um, dominated my life for a few years. Getting into them, getting into their... I didn't, you know... I just responded to their songwriting. It was so good. Still now, today, you know, I find myself uh, being amazed at watching um, the McCartney 321 series. I've never actually seen that. It's, Not yet. It's really great, really great. Go, going deeply into the song craft and also the recording chops that they, the chops they had as a band to play, but also to dig deep and find out what the best version of that song is and that's something I've always thought about song like is that you might write a song but you tempted is a case in point you might write a song but you don't necessarily know if that's the way it should go or if you should really find another way to play it and I think they did that a lot are you so surprised I mean ideally were they around for like seven years just the influence they've had on so many different people they basically you know the biggest job creators in the arts were the Beatles. <laughs> How many people, they, you know, they influenced? Totally. Across the board, everyone. And, you know, my kids of all, not through me, playing them at home. You know, they rarely play their records now, but my kids have all discovered the Beatles. And, and you know, for them, they rank alongside Tame and Parlor and some of the, you know, cooler, newer bands. I think that's a testament to how fresh their records are. Yeah. Do do the kids like uh, your music? They do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's sweet. Uh, that's good. Do, do they really like it or do they just tell you that they like it? <laughs> well, if they're lying to me, they're really good liars. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, they're all musical. We play together. It's great. I, I love that. Yeah, right. Uh, That's great. Um, A couple more songs, uh, Slap and Tickle, which I I really like. You know, just the music in that is is, is Mm -hmm. really good and really strong. Um, What was the process for that song? Flutter, he told her I loved her. Next time 
next night he called for her But that protected daughter And told him she was poorly Alive was so then surely So Michael felt rejected This wasn't quite expected He drove off to his local Where he felt antisocial thing I bought was a mini Moog because I love the sound of that instrument so much and um, that uh, that was me trying to do something like Donna Summer's I Feel Love but I didn't know that it was programmed so I, I just learned, <laughs> I learned <laughs> to play it right. with my fingers and uh, and of course so that becomes its its own thing. It's it's quirky and very in, you know I haven't heard anyone else do something like that. And it, it uh, you know the Call for Cats album was great because we experimented with a lot of different styles. And I think at the time that, that you don't know who you are and you keep on pressing for new things, that's a really sweet time. And uh, you know we got a lot of stuff out of that record. I think. Yeah, that record was great too. Also, had off the junction on it. Um, also, one of my favorite on there is "Hop, Skip, Skip and Jump," which is, is really a fun song as well on there. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, that's uh, Jules wrote that with Chris, and um, 
it's just a really it, that really sounds like we sounded at the time it was we were a very sparky band we played everything fast <laughs> yeah and uh and so occasionally we wrote things at, at the right tempo and hop skip and jump um you know you can hear the beatles influence in the riff that i came up with for it and it it works it's yeah. great playing from all of us and uh, a really great song i think Right. And you mentioned Jules, his TV show is like appointment viewing here. You know, it's like lucky that we're, we're able to get it, you know, over in the States. I mean, it's like we have nothing like it over here where you can just pan the camera around where you see like Paul McCartney. Then you see Peter Gabriel. Then you see the stone. It's, it's amazing how he gets all these guests just in one episode of the show alone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a great show. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun. But um, Pulling Muscles for Michelle is probably like top two for me, uh, you know, a uh, sweet song. They do it down on canvases, they do it at my peak. Blazing about the beach all day and night, the cricket's creepy. Squinting faces at the sky, a Harold Robbins paperback. Surfers drop their balls and drop. Yeah, <clears throat> I always think musically the chorus when it, it uh, gets to the end of the chorus. Me, me, oh, I can't sing. Sorry, <laughs> me, Marion on her tiptoe feet. That uh, that sequence was really inspired by. We spent nearly a year opening for the Tubes. Okay. In 1979, and they had this song called "White Punks on Dope," and it was really, it was a very grand sort of theatrical song. I know we're very visually orientated anyway. I was really impressed by the music to that. And that rubbed off on uh, on that part of uh, Pulling Muscles from a Show. I realised I was just, I got something from the tubes and that was what I got from them. Uh, it's a really great, you know, it's a great British seaside holiday song. Little like post, you know, it's almost like postcards of... Uh, different scenes that are mounted and, um, and put to music. And it really is 
it speaks to me of that time. I think that time has gone now. The sort of British seaside over there, everyone jets off to somewhere else now. And uh, yeah, it's a re- I'm re- I have a really soft spot for that song. Right. And then uh, a great love song, which I'm sure has been on a bunch of mixtapes. If I didn't love you. <laughs> ah. <laughs> um. <clears throat> yeah, if I didn't love you, I think it's um. It's a very different lyric, um, and uh, from the lyric, the record jumps on a scratch. I had the idea that I could just make the song seem like it got stuck, and uh, and uh, that was a that was a lucky um, accident. Mm-hmm. I was also smoking quite a lot of marijuana at the time. I think that that helped. Right. <laughs> <laughs> not that I'd recommend it now, but now no, of course legal, not. But, yeah, uh, exactly. But, <laughs> uh, there's a very um I, I don't know we're, sm- we're smoking marijuana there's a very small window of creativity followed by a much longer window of inertia that's <laughs> why i don't smoke anymore <laughs> right <laughs> definitely yeah and then just some of your solo work which is equally uh, you know fantastic as well as a couple songs um from the uh, incomplete glenn tilbert which i love that album name um this is where you ain't which is such a beautiful song
Yeah. Uh, it's a very melancholy song. Um, when I split up with the mother of my first two children, um, she um, took them to Australia, which was a terrible time. Um, and really, uh, I had to write about it because really? the best the best stuff is always that which is most heartfelt and that's just um how i felt at the time now um now it's all you know i'm glad that time's passed and uh, one of those two kids louis is on the road with us now he's a drum tech and ted is uh, living in melbourne and um and he's enduring his fifth lockdown as we speak so right yeah <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I haven't seen him for three years now, but you know, he's a man. He's got his own life. Yeah, and I love him dearly. Right. I mean, you know, thankfully we have the technology now. You can see them like virtually, but yeah, I mean, it's yeah, yeah. It, there's there's never a good to- a good time for a pandemic or a lockdown, but at least now we have those tools. Yeah, you know, exactly. It makes such make a it, difference. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's another song which, just the title alone, is interesting. You probably know where I'm going here. Uh, I know shaved, exactly where you're going. Yeah, hot shaved Asian yeah. teens. Yeah. Um, that was uh, a result of, of a bet um, <laughs> for Amy Pickard, who made the movie One for the Road about my life for touring at that time. Right. In very much reduced circumstances. Hey, said, hey, how about you write something called Hot Shaved Asian Teens? I said, yeah, all right. <laughs> not, not a great idea in retrospect. But uh, so Steve right. Poltz did the lyric for that. Uh, who's a guy I've got a lot of time for, incredibly talented writer and performer who's on the road here constantly. And um, so uh, it's not my proudest moment. I wish I hadn't done it. It's stupid. But, uh, you know, I'm right. stupid. So and you know what? It, it, it's fun, yeah. <laughs> and then also you yeah. have Gen- Genitalia of a Fool, which also is another uh, fun song. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote that. Damn it. He's a great uh, country artist in Austin, Texas, and it will come to me, I hope. In a minute. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we'll co- come back to that. Yeah. Now, like you, you mentioned touring now, and you've done it for years. What's like your favorite part of touring and any like crazy stories from recent times? Um, well, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. It, it's a, all the hours you have outside of playing are the hardest ones to pass properly. You do spend an awful lot of time, you know, watching, reading, listening to stuff. And that's good. That, that enriches, you know, that, that feeds your soul, as it were. But always the most important time is when you're on stage. That's when you, that's what you're there to do. And, you know, I think that, the entire time of this century, I've never ever taken for granted what I do, as I believe we did at some points earlier on. And uh, and I know that we can deliver a fantastic show. I'm very proud of what what we've achieved over the years with our writing and now with the band being at the level it is. We keep on getting better, and I don't see why that should ever stop. You know, if you if you put the right amount of work in and you have your heart and soul in it, and it's not just on here to make money, right? Sort of home. You know, it's a joy. It's a passion for me. 
Yeah. I mean, I know the band you know, broke up a couple of times and they even tried to get you guys back together on that VH1 show, Bands Reunited. Um, and I'm sure now you and Chris are in a good spot since you've been together, you know, for a while now, again, touring and, you know, making new albums. Yeah. Yeah. All, all of that's true. You know, um, I put my entire time into Squeeze. I don't want to do anything else. And, um, you know, it feels good to be in the space we're in now. And then the latest album, Spot the Difference, which are all, you know, new recordings of your, you know, Squeeze songs. What was like the, you know, idea for, for making that album? Uh, just to try and get some of our ownership of the songs back, because of course, um, Universal owned most of our, our catalogue, right. um, which is fine, but we put up alternative versions, done with love. Uh, uh, for instance, I think that the version of uh, That Coffee in Bed on Spot the Difference is far superior to the original record. But, um, you know, I know people... People love that song, and they probably love the version of it that they know. But uh, yeah. for me, we, we've we've bettered it, and, and I like that. The rest of them stick pretty closely to the the script of the original records. Oh, what's your favorite? Oh. Yeah, what's your favorite song to play? Uh, from that record, or just like any of your, you know, oh, tackle, um, yeah, right now. I'd say it's the departure down from the knowledge. Okay. We're playing we're playing it in our in our own shows. Um, the impact it has on the audience is quite astonishing. It's really uh, it's it really hits the target and it's not an obvious song right. at all. Do you remember where you were the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio? Yep. I was driving up Blackheath Hill. I was in someone's car, and uh, we had an EP out with a song called "Cat on the Wall," and it came on the radio, and I felt so excited.
Mm. I was like, I was 19 or 20, and it was just one of the best moments of my life ever. Right. What about like most interesting, like most like unexpected place to hear one of your songs? I did hear, this is about 20 years ago, I was, I was over here on tour, and I got in a lift and I heard a Muzak version of Tempted, which I've never heard before or since. Uh, so, <laughs> right. Crikey, we've got somewhere. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Finally know you made it then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. But Glenn, this was fantastic. I appreciate your time. Good luck with the rest of the tour. Thank you very much, Noel. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. And a special thanks to Glenn for joining me today. You can follow him on Twitter at Glenn Tilbrook. His website is glentilbrook.com. You can also follow Squeeze on Twitter at SqueezeOfficial. And also their website is squeezeofficial.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, you can hit me up on Twitter at the first mall 19 or like the page Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. Shows on SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music wherever you can find a podcast a new episode comes in every week and before we go i'm going to play you black coffee in bed from spot the difference and let me know if you can actually spot the difference happy thanksgiving everybody see you next week
Oh, oh, oh.